you. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing this morning? Good? What a weekend it's been. Man, oh man. Are your gardens all put in for next year? Oh my. You know, when I say gardens, I mean Christmas trees, gardens, whatever your whatever your fancy is. Well, we are in the second week of our series uh, in the book of Nehemiah that we've called Lean In. Last week, we looked at Nehemiah's posture. You remember that he received news from his brother that his beloved Jerusalem was in a state of disrepair. The walls were broken down, And so that left the people of Jerusalem very vulnerable because, of course, walls were a way of defense around a city. And so now here they were. There was no walls. They were laid bare. They were open to attack. And so it meant that Nehemiah's beloved city told this disgraceful story of abandonment and shame. And when Nehemiah learned about this, about what was happening, he leaned in to pray. He was grieved. And so his posture went from sitting and weeping, it moved to kneeling and praying, and then finally standing to act when he accepted the call to do the hard work of rebuilding the wall, and leading others to lean in to act as well. As cupbearer to the king, Nehemiah had found favor with the king to the point where he received exponential support. Not only did he get permission to build the wall, he received an escort and supplies as well. And so this week, We're going to take a a 30,000-foot view of the next couple of chapters of Nehemiah, and we're going to see how the people of Israel, led by Nehemiah, leaned in to act. So, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to read, starting at uh, chapter 2, we're going to pick up at verse 11. Verse 11. If you don't have your Bible with you, it's okay. We're going to have it on the screen. And I hope you can, you're able to see it. And the words are big enough there. So let's read it together. I went to Jerusalem. After staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall, 
Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. You know, we've already seen some of Le uh, Nehemiah's leadership characteristics. One was in the way he submitted to God, praying for four months, waiting patiently for God and for God's timing in all of this. And so as we come to the second part of chapter 2, he's in Jerusalem after a very long journey. And in the middle of the night, he takes just one donkey and goes to assess the damage. It's in this quiet moment of contemplation, this great leader, Nehemiah, who has shown such patience and trust throughout this whole process, it's in this moment of quietness that Nehemiah is able to think. He's able to strategize about next steps. And so finally, when he breaks his silence, he gets in front of the people. Nehemiah, in verse 17, he says, You see the trouble we're in. You see the trouble we're in. This, this isn't necessarily good words to hear, is it? I don't know if I would want that to be the first thing I hear when a great leader comes and gathers a group of people. You see the trouble we're in? He continues, Jerusalem lies in ruins, and he's explaining the trouble here, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Nehemiah, he had assessed the damage for himself. Of course, he already knew the bottom line. He already knew the trouble they were in. You know, we might do the same around our own communities and around our neighborhoods. Even beyond a local, we might assess the state of affairs across our country, looking at our current realities, at our cur considering our, our current situations. But the difference between us and Nehemiah is that the damage that we're assessing isn't physical ruins. Instead, it's spiritual despair. Instead of walls that are broken down, roads or, or, or uh, buildings that are broken down. Now, I've driven some of the roads, and you might say, hey, it's a little bit of physical ruins, right? But for the most part, instead of those physical things, these ruins that we are assessing kind of manifest as anxiety, as hopelessness, as despair, as broken families, addictions, depression. To which I say, 
Do you see the trouble we're in? And so Nehemiah, he speaks to the people, and he's about to rally the troops. And in a classic good leader move, Nehemiah tells them the why behind the what. He tells them why they need to do what they need to do. We're in trouble. We're disgraced. We're laid bare before our enemies. We are wide open to disaster. But you know what? Nehemiah never planned to leave them there. The vision birthed in his heart so many months before when he first got the wind knocked out of him, when he was first driven to his knees, weeping, praying, and fasting. That vision was never to simply gather the people and state the obvious. No. But I feel like sometimes that's what we do. We do the assessment part. We may even gather the people. We might collectively throw up our hands and and declare, look at the trouble we're in. And then we might stop there. Anyone can do that. But Nehemiah led by God, driven by compassion for the people, he didn't leave it there. And we shouldn't either. As followers of Jesus, we can't merely assess the damage and continue in despair, maybe even sometimes feeding the despair. We can't do that. Because God expects us to lean in and act. Yes, yes, we see the trouble we're in. So come, let us rebuild. And in verse 18, the response of the people is clear. Let us start rebuilding. So they began the good work. You know, I imagine here they're all riled up, you know. They're excited. Oh, yeah, let's do this. Rah, rah, rah. In my mind's eye, they're starting to roll up their sleeves and they're gathering their tools and they're they're calling their neighbors. Let's go. Let's do this. Later, we're told that the people had a mind to do the work. They put their hands to the plow. They set their mind to what needed to be done and they did it because they saw the trouble they were in and they didn't stop there. They didn't stop at the observation. And so in the next couple of chapters, Nehemiah 3 and 4, Nehemiah, he goes from cupbearer to chief architect and builder. And we read in these chapters name after name after name of people who stepped up with him, people who leaned in to act. There were men and women, young, old, sons, daughters, goldsmiths, perfumers, priests, Levites, district leaders. There is a, a picture of a healthy representation of the people working together toward success. Together. That's how God does things. You know, he could have chosen to fly solo on this. 
But I like how one author says it. He says, although he, he is able to bring about whatever he wants simply by willing it into existence, most of the time, God seems to achieve his ends through the cooperation of people. And although at times he uses select individuals to accomplish great things, he seems to prefer to involve as many people as possible. God does not, his, does not intend his work for only a few. It is for all. It is for you and for me to do the work of seeing God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You know, I love this one skit that I've, I've watched a couple of times, and it's this uh, a picture, it's this drama of this man, and, and he's going about his day-to-day -day routine, and he comes across somebody who stops, and he says, will you pray for me? I'm sick, will you pray for me? And then he carries on, and he comes across somebody else, I, I'm sick and I need some meals. And then he goes, this man, he goes and he finds somebody, he, he comes across somebody else who who says, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. And each time he interacts with these people, he says to them, hold on a second. And then he runs off to get the pastor. And he drags the pastor back to this situation that he's in the middle of. And he says, pastor, this person needs prayer. Pastor, this person needs meals. Pastor, this person wants to have a relationship with Jesus. And the pastor finally says to him, you know what? You can do that too. You can pray. You can arrange meals. You can lead someone to Jesus. It's for all of us as the body of Christ working together in unity. In fact, unity may just have been the secret sauce here as they're building the wall. But you know what? Of course it would have been. Of course it would have been an important piece Unity was a significant prayer of Jesus. So it would only make sense that the Old Testament would support its value right here in Nehemiah. In his prayer, Jesus prayed that we would be perfected in unity. Why? So that the world may know you sent me. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 17. I'm not asking on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. I love this, this line right here. This part of Jesus' prayer right here. He says, but I'm, I'm asking for those who believe in me through their word. Friends, that is you and me. That is us. Right here in 2020, look around you. Jesus was praying for us right here. We're the ones who have come to believe in Jesus through the words who, of those who witnessed him firsthand. Through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's us. He's praying for us. I'm not asking. 
asking on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they, you and me, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I also have given to them, so that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, and they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know you sent me and you loved them just as you loved me. Jesus is praying for us here. For those who believe in him, regardless of what church we might go to. And I don't know about you, but that makes me excited that Jesus, all those years before us, would pray for us in this moment that we would be one, that we would be united. It's clear right here in the prayer that Jesus prayed that people will come to know Jesus when they can see believers of Jesus operating in unity. No, we have never seen a more divided world than what we are watching right now, both inside the church and outside the church. Division has shown us no mercy. I find it interesting, though, when we dig a little deeper into the word anxiety, we find it in the Greek to mean to divide or to separate. Think about that for a moment. Our record-breaking anxiety is only being fueled by our own overwhelming division. And if that's the case, church, now more than ever, we must ask our Heavenly Father to turn his ear again to the prayers of his Son, Jesus, and let us be one as he and the Father are one, so that the world may believe, so that the world may know, and maybe, just maybe, we can turn this mess around for the glory of God and the extension of his kingdom. Together, In unity, they got the job done, and in 52 days, they built the wall. And because they were united, they were able to withstand opposition. In chapter 2, Nehemiah, he rallies the troops, and they agree to do the work. Remember, let's start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But... Why is there always a but? Right? Right out of the gate. Before they even pull their equipment up to the rubble, they're faced head on with this opposition. In verse 19, it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they ask? Are you rebelling against the king? Remember, this was the third group to go back to Jerusalem. Local authorities are are likely starting to feel threatened. They're starting to feel like they might lose some power. And furthermore, a rebuilt Jerusalem would have been a reinforced Jerusalem. It would have been a stronger Jerusalem. And why would the opposition want to just stand back and watch that happen? 
But of course, opposition isn't anything new for God's people. And it still isn't anything new today. You know, the New Testament affirms for us that we should expect opposition. We should expect opposition. That's not a very cheery message this morning. We should expect opposition. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul, he's talking to the church about coming for a visit after spending some time in Ephesus. And regarding that time, he says, there is a wide open door for a great work here, although many oppose me. Opposition will come. At the wall, it was blatant mockery from those who opposed the rebuilding for a variety of reasons. It was opposition from the outside, people coming at them, wanting their demise, wanting their destruction, wanting their failure. But opposition will also come from the inside. And in chapter 4, verse 10, we've been told a few verses before that they're at the halfway mark. They're halfway done the rebuilding. And then it says, then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired. There's so much rubble. There's so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall ourselves. Here we have discouragement, exhaustion, defeat, Man, the enemy, he's so quick to jump on those feelings. And the more you stew in them, the more you let yourself marinate on those thoughts, the happier he becomes. Because we start to do his work for him. We start to believe that we can't continue and we begin to give up the good work that we started. Remember back at the beginning, Nehemiah explained what needed to be done, and the people, they jumped right on board. Let's do this. Let's begin the good work. And now, halfway through, the opposition is thick. It's overwhelming. The people are tired. But you know what? Nehemiah, he steps in like the great leader that he is. And again, he assesses the situation and he calls everyone together and he says, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord. Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Press on, he's saying to them. Friends, the enemy prowls about seeking to destroy, seeking to divide, seeking to discourage. Know that's the plan. Know that. Let's not be naive. Call it for what it is. But you know what? Division is not God's plan. Destruction and discouragement, that's not God's plan. Fear is not God's plan. Defeat That is definitely not God's plan. Instead, turn to God. Turn to his word. Find him. Find in him the truth and strength to continue when the climb seems all uphill. When the battle 
seems like it's too much for us, this is how we're going to advance victoriously. You see, the enemy is vicious, but he's not victorious. And so in verse 16, it shows us what they did to combat the opposition. From then on, only half my men worked, while the other half stood guard with the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. All the builders had sword belted to their side. Church, if we are going to withstand uh, we are going to advance victoriously. This needs to be our posture as well. Unite it with one hand on the work and the other hand on our weapon. The sword, the word of God in our minds, in our hearts, on our lips, standing upon the truth of the word and aligning our lives with this. Not aligning our lives to the things of this world, not al but aligning our lives to the truth of the word of God. This is how we are going to overcome. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Expect opposition, friends. Be prepared for it. Be equipped to handle it and be united in front of it so that the world may know. I'm going to ask Brian to come back. From the first bite of the apple through the Old Testament and the ups and downs of the Israelites, the New Testament was always on its way. Jesus was always on the way. And not to simply come and say, you see the trouble we're in? He wasn't going to end it there. It wasn't to say, I see the trouble you're in. But it was to say, come to me. I will restore. I will redeem. I will rebuild. And that is the message we're responsible to carry out of these four walls into our communities and beyond. So I challenge you this morning, like the Israelites, will you lean in to act? The job requires a united front. It requires that we expect opposition. It requires that we have the weapon to resist. And so in Isaiah chapter 6, if I can finish with this, Isaiah, he has this profound moment in the presence of the Lord. And he says, Woe to me, I'm ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And you know what Nehemiah said. 
in this moment, in this profound moment with the Lord, the presence of the Lord so rich around him, he says, here I am. Here I am. Would you send me? Send me. The building of the wall that Nehemiah is overseeing, it required everybody. The task that we have been called to, church, requires us all. Will you lean in to act? Will you say, here I am, send me? There's something about that physical response to the message, whether it's by bowing your head or raising a hand or coming forward and, and declaring that to the Lord. There's something about that. So I want to challenge you this morning. We're going to sing. Would you take a moment and respond to the Lord? We can't hear this invitation and just walk away. We need to say, God, what is, what is my response to you? And that might be different for everyone. But what is my response to this? So, Father, in this moment here, we know you are present in this place. You have promised where we gather in your name, you are here. And so we have heard the word of the Lord today. And I pray, Father, that it has not gone out void, but with authority. And it has landed in our hearts, on our ears and in our hearts. And in these next few moments, this is a private moment. Holy Spirit, speak to us individually. Let us not leave this place today without the response to your word that you have ordained for this moment in time. Who will go for us? Here we are. Do as you will with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brian, will you lead us? I bring an offering of worship to my King. No one on earth deserves the praises that I sing. Jesus, may you receive the honor that you're due. Oh Lord, I bring an offering to you. I bring an offering to you. Sing it again. I bring an offering of worship to my King. No one on earth deserves the praises that I sing. Jesus, may you receive the honor that you're due. 
Just stand with me. The sun cannot compare to the glory of your love. There is no shadow in your presence. No more your throne before the whole. It's only by your blood, and it's only through your mercy, Lord, I come. I bring an offering of worship to my King. No one on earth deserves the praises that I sing. Jesus, may you receive the honor that you're due. Oh Lord, I bring an offering to you. I bring an offering I bring an offering to you. When we were in pre-service prayer this morning at 10 o'clock, from 10 till 10.15, downstairs, I was listening to stories already. God is, I mean, and he has been, I know, but since I've been here, I'm just, that's my frame of reference. But already we're hearing stories of people interacting with other people who need Jesus and sharing the message of Jesus with others. It's just little seeds along the way. So I, I want to thank God for what he is doing through Causeway Church, through you. You're already leaning into ACT. Thank you. Let's continue in that this week. And may our eyes be open to see those moments. And then when we see them, may we walk in obedience to him. That's our, that's our response. Obedience. Our mission here at Causeway Church is right from God's word. In fact, it's the mission of the church the capital C church and as we close out this morning I just want to read it it's Jesus himself is speaking this he's commissioning us Matthew 28 he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me therefore go go it's an action word it's a verb right it's a doing word. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, 
I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen? Those are the words of Jesus. Go with those in your heart today. Next week, we're going to continue in our Nehemiah series. Again, we'll begin with pre-service prayer in the lower level at 10. Join us if you can. And uh, have a great week this week. Thank you for being here. God bless you. Go make disciples.